0: I was thinking of that verse we just memorized from Isaiah 30. God is the God of justice. Why did God have to meet the demands of justice on the cross to forgive our sin? Especially when you think that there is no higher authority above him. He was not answerable to anybody. In human courts, if you do something wrong, there's a higher court you're answerable to and they can question you. But God didn't have anybody to answer to. And he could have just said, okay, we'll just forgive people. If they repent, we'll forgive them. And nobody would have been any the wiser. And we ourselves would have said, that's great. But there you see something of the integrity there is in God that sin demands punishment and uh, even if I have nobody higher than me, God says to answer to and sin is such a terrible, dreadful thing that there is only one way for it to be removed Someone has to take that punishment completely. And there's no one fit enough to take the punishment of eternal separation from God for all eternity. No human being, no created, created being could ever take that. Because, you know, the punishment for sin, as I've often said, is not physical death. When we are children, we are taught that Jesus died for us on the cross. And we think of that physical death, and most of the time we think of the agony and the pain of being crucified. But physical death is not the punishment for sin. So if Jesus only died physically, he did not pay the price for my sin. Because the, the price for my sin is eternal separation from God. And we know that. That is hell. Hell is eternal separation from God. And if Jesus did not take that punishment of eternal separation from God, then I am still in my sins. And it's when you understand that, you understand what a terrific price, what an awesome, difficult and painful price Jesus paid on the cross, which is millions of times greater than the physical suffering. It was a separation from God for those 3 hours when he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me that's a god of justice of the cross and uh, <clears throat> it was eternal those 3 hours because jesus is an infinite being for us 3 hours is 3 hours but for an infinite being even 1 second is eternity so we there we understand that there was the full price paid for our sins on the cross. And I know it's when I understood that that I began to take sin more seriously. See, a lot of people take sin very lightly because they haven't seen the seriousness of the cross. They haven't seen the seriousness of God's justice, the demands of justice being met upon the cross. And what Jesus went through, so in such terrific agony is the only time in his life where he said, Father, can you please help me to avoid this? Never in his life did he ever say that. He always wanted to do the Father's will, no matter what the cost was. But here was something which is terribly painful. And I'm sure the Father in Heaven suffered just as much as the Son upon the cross. And uh, it's not something our minds can grasp easily. But the more you grasp it, I tell you, the more you will hate sin and uh, holiness will not be something so difficult to come to when you understand it. So that's a great thing to see the justice of God met on the cross. I was thinking of some of the commendations that Jesus made which have challenged me for example, you know, may, may we think of faith as a very difficult thing to achieve. Uh, you always say, I wish I could have faith for that or some other thing we are asking God for. And if I had faith, I'd get it. But faith is not such a difficult thing as the devil makes us believe. Now I want to show you one example of that in Mark, Matthew chapter 8. <clears throat> In Matthew 8, you know the story of this Roman centurion who had a servant who was paralyzed at home. We read about it in Matthew 8, verse 5 and 6. And this man, there are a number of things we see about this man. He was a very humble man, obviously, and a very loving man. I mean, a Roman military captain who had a centurion means he had a 100 soldiers under him who would obey him promptly. And yet he had a servant. A servant was probably a slave. And the Romans didn't care much for slaves. But here was a man who cared enough for his paralyzed slave at home to go all the way some distance to meet Jesus just to get his servant healed. And that shows what a, despite being a military man, he was so loving. And when he met the Lord and the Lord said, I'll come and heal him, verse 7, you see his humility i mean if if we were living in Israel at that time and we heard a knock on the door and Jesus was there, we'd say, Lord, come right in, but look at the centurion's attitude, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter my house. Amazing. I wonder whether we'd say that if we met if we he heard a knock at the door and Jesus was there. Have you thought of it? If you were living in Israel at that time, would you say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter my house? We'd say, great, come right in. And there you see his humility. He didn't feel he was anywhere near worthy to welcome Jesus, just to come into his house. So there we see a man who, despite being a military man and probably involved in wars where a lot of people were killed he was a very loving humble man and because of that you see his faith he told jesus you don't have to come to my house you can stand here and speak the word just like i tell soldiers to go and they go you can speak the word and uh, i know the sickness will go because I sense, Lord, that you're a man under authority. You know, military people can usually recognize other military people. And he said, I don't know who this authority is over this man, but he sees uh, something about the, his bearing, which indicates that he's under some authority. He didn't understand the theology of it, but so he said, you just got to stand here and say, go, and it'll go. And now you see what the Lord says in verse 10 truly i say to you i have not found such great faith with anyone in israel <clears throat> so is faith such a difficult thing to achieve here's a man who never read the bible who didn't know anything about old covenant or new covenant or any covenant and yet he had faith faith enough to experience a miracle in his life it's a great encouragement to me to read that to see that this thing that so many people make much of faith as if it's some Thing which is so difficult to attain. This man had the greatest faith of, in all of Israel without a knowledge of the Word, without a knowledge of Jesus, without the Holy Spirit. So it's not something so difficult to achieve. But what we learn from him is it does require humility. There's a close connection between humility and faith. The opposite of faith is not necessarily unbelief. The opposite of faith is pride. And you see his outstanding humility in these two things. One in his willingness to care for his servant. I mean usually as I said Roman captains couldn't care less for a slave but you see his humility in caring for his servant and then his humility in saying Lord I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. And so if we lack faith for something You probably know the reason now. It's because we are not humble enough like this man. Turn with me to an Old Testament verse in the book of Habakkuk and chapter 2. Habakkuk is fifth or so book from the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 2. Here is a contrast between the man of faith and the opposite of the man of faith. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the last part, it says, the righteous will live by his faith. And that's the verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. The righteous will live by his faith. But the opposite of that is, not the unbelieving one, verse 4, but the proud one. So the contrast here is between a proud person and a person who doesn't have faith. Or who has faith, rather. The proud person is the opposite of the one who has faith. The righteous will live by faith, but the proud one, his soul, is not right. So, we discover there, in this verse, and also in the example of the Roman centurion, that if we lack faith for something, the problem is not because we have not received some supernatural gift from God. It's just that we're not humble enough. If we were a little more humble, you'd have a little more faith. And I presume that the humblest person of all would have the greatest faith. So, if you want faith, what you need to pursue is humility. And humility means to have low thoughts about ourselves and very exalted thought of Christ and that we don't compare ourselves with each other favorably. And uh, think of ourselves as more important than others. That's a constant temptation to think of ourselves as more important or more respectable than others or something like that. Oh, look down on another, per- another person for for any reason, for his lack of education or lack of spirituality or just because he belongs to another community or is uncultured or a 101 things you can look down on people for. And there lies the reason for all the unbelief. That's the reason if the righteous are going to live by faith, faith is essential for spiritual progress. There we see the reason why we don't make spiritual progress that we could have made and why someone else is bounding forward in spiritual progress. It's not uh, because he studied more scripture or anything like that. He's a humbler person and therefore he's got more faith. Another thing which I see a commendation of Jesus he made again to someone who didn't really have qualifications that we think people should have to be spiritual, is in John chapter one. in John chapter one, we read about a man called Nathaniel, Philip, who was one of the disciples that met with Jesus. And uh, in John one forty three, when Jesus went into Galilee, he met Philip, and said to him, "Follow me." And he followed. And Philip was from Bethsaida. He immediately went and found Nathaniel, either a friend or a relative of his, and said to him, "Hey, we've found the Messiah. We've found the man who Moses and law." prophets spoke about is Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph and Nathaniel who's a thoroughly unconverted person he's not a Christian he doesn't know anything about Jesus his immediate reaction is can anything good come out of Nazareth he, Nazareth obviously had some type of bad reputation I don't know why but it's like a town that had a bad reputation And it's interesting that God allowed his son to be born in such a town. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you know, Jesus heard that. I'll tell you why I say he heard it, even though Jesus was not anywhere nearby. Because later on, when Nathaniel comes to Jesus... Jesus says to him in verse 48, Nathanael asks him, how do you know me? He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That was supernatural, I don't know, maybe in a mile away. Nathanael was probably praying under the fig tree and the Holy Spirit showed that to Jesus and he said, I saw you. So I believe he obviously heard what Nathanael had said which may have been some distance away, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And look at what Jesus says about him. It's one of the finest commendations of a man that Jesus gave. Here is a man, verse 47, in whom there is no deceit, no guile, no pretense, no hypocrisy. I've meditated on that many times and i said, Lord, If you can say that about me, every moment of my life, there is a man who is utterly sincere and upright. He's not perfect, but there's no hypocrisy in him. There's no pretense. There's no guile. There's no deceit. He's not pretending to be something he's not. If he feels that Nazareth is a useless place, he says so. He's quite open about it. And I see that Jesus appreciated something in a thoroughly unconverted Jew who had no interest in Christ at all at that time. He appreciated the fact that he was without guile. Now these two examples that I took were both a thoroughly unconverted people. One was a Roman military man, and here was a a skeptical Jew. And Jesus commends this person for the fact that he lacked He was completely free from hypocrisy. And I I see that that when I see this, I see how much Jesus valued faith in the first example and how much he valued our being completely free from pretense. That's what it means to be free from guile. Here we are a church that emphasizes overcoming sin, pressing on to perfection, the new covenant where sin will not rule over us and where we believe we can be filled with the Holy Spirit that sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts and where we can build together a family called the body of Christ which over which the gates of hell cannot prevail. And when you come into a church which has got such high standards and proclaiming such high standards, what Is the greatest danger that you and I face? I've thought about it. The greatest danger, I would say, is the danger of pretending to be more spiritual than you really are, pretending to have a life that you don't have, pretending to Have a zeal for God which you really don't have. And that's why I say this commendation is so wonderful. If the Lord can look at you and me and say there's a person who has no pretense. What you see is what you get. That's what he is. He is what you see. I've long for that. I say, Lord, I always want to be like that. My life. It wasn't like that when I started my Christian life. You know, all of us when we begin our Christian life, we have a because we are young and immature, we have a desperate desire to impress. Just like little children. Little children have a great desire to impress. And spiritually when we are babes also we have a desire to impress. And uh, I remember uh listening to one of the messages I I preached about 50 years ago. It's, I had a tape of it, and I it was at some big conference somewhere. And uh, I listened to it, and I said, "Wow, I can't believe that's me." It was so obvious in what I was preaching there that I was I, everything I said was right. But I could sense in it with the maturity I have now. That the way I was speaking then, nearly 50 years ago, I was obviously trying to impress people. And it's like that when we are young. And if we don't battle it, it's like a sickness. If you don't battle it and get rid of it, it will continue with us and become worse and worse and worse. It's like any other sickness. If you don't deal with it radically, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So think of little children, how they desire to impress. That's true of us as... Young believers as well. And we have to battle it. And it will hinder our spiritual progress if we don't battle it and get rid of it. The desire to give people the impression by the way I speak or whatever I share that I am a serious Christian. Beware of it. We must fight it and fight it and fight it. And uh, ask God to help us to be totally free from it and never be. And if you see the slightest trace of it coming up somewhere, that we judge ourselves severely. And it can come up, you know, and sometimes we're in conversation with somebody and as we go away from there, the Lord says, you know why you said that? That was just to impress that person. That's all. I don't feel condemned about it. Lord, thank you for showing me that. I want to judge myself and cleanse myself. And each cleansing will make you more and more free from hypocrisy. It's not something you can do like that in a moment. But if we judge ourselves, we can cleanse cleanse ourselves. Pretense is like a huge onion. And if we keep peeling off layer by layer after layer, we can get to the center and eliminate pretense from our life completely. But only if you are serious about it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they will be satisfied or they will be filled so if we don't hunger and thirst for this righteousness which is the life of Christ in us, we're never going to be get we're never going to get there and the other thing which I've had on my heart today is to come into the life of Christ that we have constantly spoken of in this church and in all of our churches there, I think of two things particularly which we have today which they didn't have in the Old Covenant they had the Word of God in the Old Covenant and we have the Word of God today though greater truths and uh, they knew about the love of God in the Old Testament and they had commandments but they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit They only had the Holy Spirit upon them in the Old Testament. The Spirit came upon Samson. The Spirit came upon David. The Spirit came upon Saul. It was external. but Now we have it inwardly. That's why in the Old Covenant, the rivers of living water could only flow from outside. Whereas Jesus said in John 7, from the innermost being, the rivers will flow. They had rivers in the Old Testament. When you think of I mean, Moses smiting the rock to the rivers that flowed to satisfy the thirst of a million people or two or three million people. And Moses was the instrument. But it was not from within. The Spirit came upon David and Samson, never cleaned up their inside. It was on the outside. But now, Jesus said, from his innermost being, the rivers will flow. So the Spirit of God comes in and does a great work within us. And that, from there, it flows out. Anything that flows out from the outside, which is merely external, is not really New Covenant ministry. Uh, people have sometimes asked me, who listen to my messages on YouTube or somewhere, they say, Brother Zach, can we, can we preach your messages? Can we take those points and preach it? I said, sure. If you first let it work inside you and become real in your life, then it will flow from within then it's okay to go right ahead. Otherwise you'll be a hypocrite. You'll be having something in your head that you've read and memorized and you'll be speaking it out and it's not, it's not part of you. And it's not part of you, you're just making yourself a bigger hypocrite by speaking something which you've not really experienced or even longed to experience. I'm not saying you've got to attain to that, but at least if you have a longing to attain to it, then you, you can certainly speak about it. Otherwise you're a hypocrite. And you will destroy yourself. So it must come from within. From within. The Holy Spirit works from within. So that's very, very important. It was not there in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, it's not there in a lot of Christendom today. A lot of Christendom today, it's external Christianity. It's clapping and shouting and a lot of external things. And now they've got colored lights as well. All types of things. The whole thing's external. It's old covenant. It's not new it's not this inner life of the new covenant. External life, you know that even the Pharisees had. Jesus told the Pharisees, You clean the outside of the cup. That was a commendation. He says the trouble is the inside of your cup is dirty, but the outside is clean. So that was a commendation that their external life was clean. They kept the commandments, they didn't commit adultery, they didn't steal, they didn't worship idols. Their external life was clean. What was lacking was in the inner life. And so, if we don't concentrate on that inner life, we're not really in the new covenant. Whatever, a better external life than many other churches means nothing. It just means a cleaner cup on the outside. And the inside could be just as dirty. So this is very, very important. The Holy Spirit working within us, filling us constantly on the inside, and the moment I sense I've slipped up somewhere and in the inside I've got to immediately come to the Lord and ask the Lord to forgive me. There must be no delay there, and the uh, more wholehearted we are, the quicker we'll come to set matters right. as soon as you've lost your temper with someone, you immediately apologize. When I meet married couples, I say, well, I'm sure you guys get angry with each other because you're just newly married. And uh, But my question is, do you apologize? I, when I asked them after a few years, I said, I hope the the time between your anger and your apology is becoming less and less and less and less, and then you're growing. If not, you're not growing." So, this is sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. The other thing which is missing in the Old Testament, which is in the New Testament, I just mentioned two things. One is the Holy Spirit inwardly, and the other is taking up the cross. There was no cross in the Old Testament. I'm not talking about the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary was even symbolized in the altar where the Lamb was slain. The Old Testament, they had an altar where the Lamb was slain and that Calvary was an altar where the Lamb of God was slain. I'm not talking about that cross. I'm talking about the cross that Jesus bore every day of his 33 and a half years, every day of his life. We know he bore a cross because he said, Luke 9, 23 you know this verse. But think of the implication of it. Think of the implication of this verse. Luke 9 and verse 23. If anyone will come after me. Anyone wishes to come after me. Now, let's read that slowly. Come after Jesus. That means if anyone wants to walk in Jesus' footsteps, if anyone wants to follow Jesus, this is what he must do. He must deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow him. You cannot follow him if you don't deny yourself every day. You cannot follow him if you don't take up your cross every day. There's no such thing in the Old Testament. I and mean, if you had put a verse like that in the Old Testament, people would have wondered, what's that? It's Greek or Hebrew or something, you can't understand it. It was a language that was unknown in the Old Testament. And I'm sorry to say, it's unknown to many Christians today. What does it mean to take up your cross every day? People think difficulty is my cross. I've got a severe backing, that's my cross. That's a lot of rubbish. Or I've got a difficult wife, that's a cross. That's equally rubbish because it's only a follower of Jesus who can take up the cross, but there are a lot of unbelievers who got back aches and difficult wives so that can't be the cross at all some difficulty in your path is not the cross and the other thing about the cross is it's always voluntarily taken anything that you are forced to take is not the cross your backache is not voluntarily taken and a difficult neighbor or a wife is not voluntarily taken the cross is something you voluntarily choose it's not forced upon you so It means that if I want to follow Jesus, I have to die to myself, that's the cross, every day. So from that verse, I understand that Jesus died to himself every day. Otherwise, he couldn't possibly be asking me to follow him if he never walked this path himself. So that's the verse that shows me very clearly that Jesus took up the cross every day and denied himself every single day of his earthly life. That was the cross in his life which most Christians have not seen. So nobody can even think of following Jesus if he's not going that way. So many people sing, follow, follow, I will follow, anywhere, everywhere, I'll follow on. They don't have a clue. I remember the years when I sang it as a young Christian. I didn't even know what it meant. It's just a nice song to sing, shake your hips and sing, follow, follow, I will follow. A lot of Christianity is like that today. Superficial, shallow, empty. So. if you really want to be serious Christians, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work within and must flow from the inside from this innermost being. It it won't be a river in the beginning. It may be just a little few drops, a trickle of water coming out. That's fine. But it must be from within. And if you work on it, work on it. One day I tell you it will become a river. And many rivers that can flow right from you in many, many directions. If you're faithful, to let the Holy Spirit work on the inside. It's very simple. As I told you, faith is not such a complicated thing. A military, Roman military man who's never read the Bible could have faith. More than anybody in Israel who read the Bible. And an unconverted Jew could be completely free from hypocrisy. Not perfect, but free from hypocrisy. Why can't you and I be free from hypocrisy then? Why can't you and I have faith if a Roman military man could have faith? Humility, that's the secret. So taking up the cross, I see that Jesus, every day of his life, he said no to himself and died to his own choice so that he might do the will of God. There was no other way to do the will of God. When Jesus came from heaven, we read there's something he took on which he never had in heaven turn with me to john chapter 6 and verse 38 In john 638 he says i have come from heaven not to do my own will that's the cross i often say john 638 is the one autobiography of jesus you know what an autobiography is an autobiography is a biography a man writes about his own life. So this is the autobiography of the life of Jesus. He writes about his own life in one sentence. This is my life from birth to death. Here is my biography. I never do my own will, but the will of my father. That covers everything. If you say that Jesus came from heaven just to die for me on the cross, that's not a complete answer. Because that was just one of the hundreds of things that he did. Dying on the cross. I mean, it may be a very important thing. But that's not the only reason why he came. Because if he, that was the only reason why he came. Well, he need not have lived that perfect life for 33 and a half years. But God wanted to show us not only death on the cross, but also how God wants man to live. That's the other thing which many Christians haven't understood. That Jesus came not only to die for our sins, but to show us how God originally wanted Adam to live. And that was demonstrated for 33 and a half years. And that's our example. And the only way we can live that life is if we do what He did deny ourselves and take up the cross. And if you find that your daily life at home, particularly, is not becoming more Christ like, if your speech, towards your husband or wife is not becoming more Christ-like, more gracious, more gentle, more pure, you can be absolutely sure that you have not been gripped by the message of following in Jesus' footsteps. If you find your attitude to money is not becoming more like Christ's, if the way you look at women, men, look at women is not becoming more the way more like the way Jesus would look at women something is wrong i'm not saying perfection is it becoming better are you progressing along this way or are you in the same old rut that you have been in for many many years it's not god's will we must make progress just like we long for our children to grow physically to grow intellectually to grow in in their their academic studies in school, God also has a longing that we grow. We're not supposed to be the same state spiritually as we were one year ago when we came to this church or five years ago when we came to this church. No, we're not supposed to be there. Just like you don't expect your child to be in the same grade three, four years after he's gone to school. So this is the reason why progress is not there. People have not understood that I cannot make progress in the Christian life if I don't see the footsteps of Jesus, which is, I do not do my own will, John 6:38, 38, but the will of my Father. Now, in heaven, Jesus could say, before he came to earth, I do my own will. Because it is the same as my Father's will. That's right. It's a correct statement. If in heaven before he became a man he said you know what I do in heaven I do my own will really Lord yeah what about your father's will it's the same as my father's will but the moment he came to earth came this conflict that's called temptation so when it says Jesus was tempted In all points as we are. He was tempted to do his own will. He was tempted to not deny his will. But assert his will. Like we are. All sin is to do our own will. What did Eve do in the Garden of Eden? She did her own will. She denied the Father's will and did. Her own will. I want to do what I feel like eating this. I'm going to eat it. And that is what sin really is. She knew the commandment of God. You know, I want to do what I feel like doing. And you ask yourself in the different situations you face in life. And see if that is not true. That is what shows us the depth of sin. It's not just a question of avoiding certain dirty habits. The root of sin is doing my own will. And it's when John the Baptist said that Jesus has come with an axe to the root of the tree, I would say the Old Testament was only like a pair of scissors that cut off the fruit. You know, a man commits murder, then you cut it off. Make sure he doesn't commit murder or he's going to commit adultery, cut off that fruit as is about to come. But Jesus hit the root and the root was I want to do my own will. I want to do what pleases me. Once that root is hit all these things are taken care of. I sometimes use the illustration of a person who gets sores in his body and he fortunately there's some ointment some doctor prescribes which takes care of it but you get rid of it in one place it comes in your other hand next day and in your legs or some other part of your body and you got to keep applying this ointment all the time. Uh, That's what the law was, preventing this thing from bursting out and destroying man. But then somebody discovers an antibiotic. And an antibiotic, you don't rub on that sore. You take it inside and it hits the root of the thing causing the sore. You don't need the ointment anymore. That's the meaning of being free from the law. The law was like an ointment that kept the source in check. And you know it says in the uh, New Testament how I'm free from the law. But you're free from the law only if you have taken the antibiotic of grace inside. To deal with it inside. If I'm willing to take up the cross that puts my own will to death. then you don't need the law. But people who say they are free from the law They haven't come under grace. They'll be with no covenant. And a lot of Christians today are with no covenant. And that's why so much of sin in the church. So in this matter of taking up the cross, there's just one aspect of it that I would like to emphasize. And that is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks about Taking part in a race. And you know the Christian life is likened to a race. We are told let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Hebrews chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, our forerunner. You know that's the title of Jesus in Hebrews 6.20. Forerunner. Not for walker. But for runner, Which means he wasn't walking. He was running. And I'm. it says in Hebrews 12, let us run this race looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That means I've got someone who's gone in front of me along the same track, same race. All I need to do is see his footsteps and walk along, walk in those footsteps. And those footsteps are left, right, left, right, not my will, but God's will, not my will, but God's will. Every step of Jesus was Not my will, my Father's will. And that is the path I have to run. I don't need great knowledge of the Bible. I just need to have a willingness to say no to my own will. I say no and I want to do the will of the Father. That is the cross. And that's the meaning of taking up the cross. I deny myself, die to myself so that I can do the will of God. And when we recognize that the life Jesus lived was the most wonderful and the most beautiful life that any human being has ever lived. He didn't have much money. He didn't have fame. He was mostly ridiculed and mocked and called the devil and all types of things. But that was the most wonderful life that any human being ever lived. Now I'm sure all of us will agree there. Now if you really believe that, you'll want to know what is the secret. How did he live this wonderful life? I mean, when I got gripped by it, I said, Lord, I'm absolutely convinced that is the most wonderful life a human being can ever live on the earth and I want to live that life. And so I said, I want to find out the secret. The secret is this. I have to say no to my own life every day, to my own self. If I want to, I can have it, but God won't compel me. He doesn't catch me by the neck and say, come on, run this race. Every single moment of every single day, he gives me freedom to choose whether I want to walk in his footsteps or not. And you'll find that many, many times in the day. You you have a choice before you. And your spiritual level today, listen to this, your spiritual level today is the sum total of all those decisions that you have made in past years. Think of from the time you were born again. The number of times you had an opportunity to deny your will, say no to your will, to shut your mouth and to forgive and not respond in the angry way somebody spoke to you or in any other way, to turn your eyes away from temptation, to say no to your own will. Think if you had taken all those opportunities to ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit deny yourself where you would have been today. How useful you could have been for God. Not not what a reputation you, you could have got for spirituality. That's garbage. I'm not talking about spiritual reputation. I'm talking about being useful to God and being glorifying God and accomplishing God's purposes on earth and confounding the devil. I don't want to be just a person who comes along regularly Sunday meetings and ticks uh, off my i come regularly. I'm a member here. It means nothing to me. You must have a passion that your life must count for God so that when you come to the end of your life you can say like the Apostle Paul I've finished my course. And remember Paul had messed up nearly half his life. He died when he was around 67 and for 30 years he had been an anti-Christian. Not just non-Christian but anti-Christian for 30 years. A man who messed up his life for 30 years was so wholehearted for the next 37 years that he could say, I finished God's plan for my life. How is that possible? That's possible even if you messed up half your life. <laughs> you can, that's a great encouragement that Paul didn't start wholeheartedly from the time he was a kid. It was much later in life. And it's such an encouragement that he can say at the end of your life, I finished the plan God had for my life. If you're radical, wholehearted, even from today. So 1 Corinthians 9 Paul says see everybody runs in a race but only one can win. And he's telling all these Corinthian Christians who were so carnal Christians do you know that all of you can get the first prize. This is one of the unique races where everybody gets, can get a first prize. Only one can win but you must run it says in such a way, verse 24 that you win this prize. And he said, Paul, you really mean all of us can get the first prize? Sure. Even though we are such carnal people here in Corinth, sure. If you take your life seriously from now on, you can win the first prize along with the others. You're not competing with the others here, really. You're competing with your own self, which has to be crucified. But if you want to win, <clears throat> take an example from all these people who take part in the Olympic Games. They deny themselves so many things. People who run the 100 meters or the marathon, uh, 26 miles in the Olympic Games, they don't eat and eat and eat and eat whatever they like. They're very disciplined in their eating, for example. They're disciplined in when they get up and practice every day. And I suppose a person who wins the marathon must have run the marathon about, 1,500 times before he won the final marathon in the Olympics. Every day for four years he gets up and runs 26 miles because he wants to win that gold medal. He's so disciplined and he, he comes to a feast and he doesn't eat everything because he says, hey, I'll just get overweight. I won't be able to win this prize. He says he's disciplined everything. And he, it's not that he doesn't like all that food placed before him. But he's, he says, I won't be able to win the prize if I eat all this stuff and stuff myself with it. I won't win that prize if I'm lazy to get up in the morning and not go for a run. So he says, they they exercise self-control in all things. And therefore, he says, I also do the same thing. Verse 27, I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. And the Living Bible paraphrases it very beautifully. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I make my body do what it should do, not what it wants to do. The conflict is between what it wants to do and what it should do. And in between, Paul says, I, I am the one who determines. My body wants to do this, but I know my body should do this. I make sure it does what it, does and what it wants to do. That is discipline. And a lot of people who claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit and come for meetings and read the Bible and all that, if discipline is lacking in their life, they'll never become spiritual. And that discipline is the discipline of saying no to yourself. Making my body do what it should do, not what it wants to do. When my eyes like to look at something which is tempting me sexually, I know what it should be doing and I know what my body wants to do. And there I need to choose. I'm going to make my do body do what it should do, not what it wants to do. And that's where I need the power of the Holy Spirit. So many people are so crazy after speaking in tongues. I say, boy, that's not the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. You know that Jesus never spoke in tongues, even once in his life. Why should we be so crazy after him? God gives it, take it? But the main thing is that the Holy Spirit strengthened Jesus to say no to his own will. That's why he prayed. That's why he prayed in Gethsemane. Oh, Father, I don't want to do my own will. I want to do your will. Pray. It says in one place he prayed with loud crying and tears. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. He was so intense and earnest. What for? He wasn't praying for any earthly gain. Lord, give me a chariot or something to make life easier. No, no, no. He was only praying that he'd never do his own will. He made his body do what it should do, not what it wants to do. And this is not so difficult. If we, But we need to have an example. You know, that in the Old Testament, they didn't have an example. In the Old Testament, it's full of exhortation, exhortation, exhortation. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. But in the New Testament, all that is replaced with, follow me. I like that. You know, it's like, If you want to learn swimming and somebody explains on the blackboard, on a board here how to move your hands and how you move your legs and say okay, go jump in the river. Everybody will drown. They're not going to learn swimming that way. But if he says come with me, I'll show you. Watch how I swim. That's much easier to learn. That's the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant it was all explanation. It's all correct explanation but it doesn't, nobody learns anything. But in the New Covenant Jesus says follow me. Follow me. Lord, did you deny yourself? You certainly did. Were you tempted exactly like me? The Holy Spirit says exactly like you. Tempted to get angry, tempted with sexual lust, tempted with to love money. Name it. He was tempted like you. Do you know the devil even tempted him to commit suicide? Jump from the roof of the temple. (laughs) What's that? It's temptation to suicide. He said, no. There was no temptation that any man faced that Jesus did not face. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all points as we are, but he did not sin. In other words, he just said, Father, please help me that I never do my own will. I never let my body do what it wants to do, but what it should do. in everything." So I want to say to you, my dear brothers and sisters, this is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit but with the power of the Holy Spirit, it is as possible for us as it was for Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful message of the new covenant. And if we are gripped by it, we have found the secret. And it will make our fellowship with each other also glorious. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, Please help us not to forget the little things you have spoken to us this afternoon. And let them make a deep impression on us according to our need. And remind us when we come to those crossroads in life to make the right choice. Seek for the power of your spirit to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Make this church a living, powerful church in testimony for you. We know you don't care for numbers, but you care for quality. We pray there will be such quality here that you can approve of. It's like you said about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased that you can say about this church, this is my beloved church in whom I am well pleased. Fulfill that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.